Grab your Bibles and turn to John 14. So I'm going to read all of what we did. So we're going to read 12 through 18. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of what's called the Tower of Babel. So the whole world at the time spoke one language. They all had common words. They all seemed to arrive at a place in the plain of Shinar and what we know as modern-day Iraq or ancient Babylon. And there's a place called Babel. There was one city. There was one world. As they lived together, one language, they all used the same words together. They all spoke to one another. They didn't consider any word from God at all. They wanted to all get along together, have the same mindset, same worldview. Incidentally, nothing new is under the sun. You hear this today. Can't we all just get along and agree together and and speak about things in the same way? If you recall the story, they were trying to build a tower up to the heavens to reach the heavens in their own ingenuity, their own power, their own way. And if you look at our world today, we have seen in our midst over the last 19 to 20 months where the world has become united around a disease and a language about that and many other things there also around a fear of death. And Satan, I believe, is behind all of this ultimately because uh, John writes to us, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And he has had a field day um, over the last 19 to 20 months in regard to the fear that's there and the things that are present um, in our world. We know in the last days, what happens in the very, very last days, there is a one world government, there is one ruler that is over things there is a commonality about things but things began to unravel then as they did in Genesis chapter 11 all over the world today right now all of the governments of the world are telling everybody what to think and say about uh, a number of issues that are there and let me just remind us of what they were saying at Babel in Genesis 11 they said come saying to one another let us build ourselves a city, and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, our name, let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They were wanting to build a city without God, without His words. Nobody in the city stopped to ask God whether they should do any of this. They just decided to do it anyway. Well, the issue is in Genesis 11 is that God comes down and God comes down and he always looks and he listens. 
And he comes down and he takes a look at what they're building. He listens to what they are saying. We want to make a name for themselves. And I love what it says there, already an affirmation of the Trinity. Let us go down. Let us, plural, not singular. Let us go down. And, and God speaking amongst themselves in the Godhead says, if this is what they're going to do now, can you just imagine if we just let this go on, what they will do? So God saw the world's oneness as sin because it was all about themselves and keeping Him out. For everything was going to be centered around three ideas in Genesis 11. One is, let us build ourselves our own city, our own place, and we will be in control of that. Secondly, they said, let us build our own way into heavens. We'll build our own pathway, our own tower We will do that. We do not have to listen to God's way. And then they say, let us make a name for ourselves. And so I want to begin today because of what Jesus is telling the 11. And and you and I, we have to talk about real stuff in here, right? We can't just ignore culture. We can't ignore what's going on. We, We at times need to make application and see how in the world do we navigate where we're living, reading texts. Of scripture. And so I just want to remind us this morning that though there all three of those things left God out of the picture, we here today, we are about one name, one name only. We are about God's glory. In Babel, they were about themselves, they were about many names and making a name for themselves. But for us, we have one name that is the hope of humanity. Regardless of culture, regardless of the condition of the world, regardless of the call to oneness to think about things that is present in our world today, by godless people, we as God's people, we think singularly about the glory of God and we follow Him. We do not let other names divide us, but we unite under one name. And so on a night, a couple of thousand years ago, where for 11 men their world is about to turn upside down, they have lived with Jesus gloriously for three years. He has just told them, I'm about to go away from you, and where I'm going to go, you're not going to get to come. I'm not going to leave you alone. You are going to be taken care of, but you're not going to be able to come to where I'm going to go. And so he pours one last long teaching, last fresh words into their lives to know how to navigate the days ahead. They desperately needed to know these words and embrace these words. What the world did not need 2,000 years ago was a one restored Israel. They would have liked that, but that's not what the world needed. It didn't need less oppression from Rome. Though it could have used that, it's not what it needed most. Could the world 2,000 years ago have used less violence? Yes, it could have, but it's not what it needed. What it needed was the glory of the Son of God who was present in the city and it was about to die on the next day on a cross to redeem humanity. And I want to say today in the room that what our world needs today is Jesus. There's a lot of names being put forth. There's a lot of plans to fix the chaos and the craziness 
of our day and time today, and I just want to remind you and I today, there is only one cure. There is only one hope. There are not many hopes. There is one hope, and that is Jesus. And so on this night, Jesus turns to the men, and their hearts are troubled because he's told them he's going away, and he tells them, listen, I am entrusting you with the gospel, and you are going to do greater works than I've done in regard to the gospel. I've done gospel work in Israel only, but I'm entrusting you to take the gospel to not just in Jerusalem, but into Judea, and then in Samaria, and then I want you to go to the other most parts of the world taking the gospel. And so we don't do more miracles and miraculous things than Jesus, but we, the church has done in the last 2,000 years, taken the gospel, the work of the gospel through missions, further than Jesus did. Now we have done it in the power, in the name of Jesus, um, as he has used us, we have been kind of the means in regard uh, to doing that. And then he told them this. So you're going you're gonna to carry on what I've done. And as you carry this on, you're going to pray. And when you pray, you're going to pray in my name. You're not going to pray for new cars and new things like that unless you needed a car. But, but you, really, you really, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray in my name that the Father would be glorified as you take the gospel and do the work. And you pray in my name in line with the gospel work, and I will answer those prayers. I will rescue nations. I will save families. I will bring reconciliation of fathers to sons and sons to father. I will, will do this work. But how in the world do you do that? Because they began to go, and they began to go in lands where there was idol worship. And if you read the book of Acts, they didn't applaud when the apostles came to town a lot of times. It was very costly to take the gospel. So how do you do that? Well, you take the gospel. When you take the gospel to these other places, Jesus gives now what we're going to talk about today, three aspects of instruction that are important to that. One was this. Before those people who've not heard the name, you love me, and when you love me, this is what you'll do. You will keep my commands. You are to live the commands, the things that I've taught you before these people. And they're not going to be excited about that. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go away, and when I go, I'm going to ask the Father to give you a helper as you take the gospel to other places, and He will be with you, and He will indwell you. And sometimes you will stand before kings and rulers who want to kill you, and you will say things that you are not even prepared to say, and Jesus says you will, you will say things that the Spirit enables you to say before kings. And so He says, listen, I will equip you by giving you the Holy Spirit to indwell you. And then lastly, he tells them, we will see today, that we will never, ever be alone. His going away wasn't for him to permanently stay away. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He reminds them again of what he says earlier, that if he goes away, he's going to prepare a place and he will come back again. And he repeats that again today. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come again to you so that's that's a brief synopsis we could pray and go home but you don't want to do that you want to hear all of this right hello yes okay all right all right look with me in 15 let's talk about keeping his commands in love so if you love me you will keep my commandments as we continue in this theme about the union, He is in the Father, the Father is in Him. 
One of the great blessings that is connected to that are these things that we have been unfolding, these five things, two last week, three today. Paul's in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to get out. He doesn't know, if, okay, am I going to die in Rome? I'm in prison. Or am I going to get out and continue to live? And one of the great verses highlighting the loving God and keeping His commandments is found in the letter to the church in Philippi. And so Philippians 1, 20 and 21, Paul writes these words. He says, as it, is, it, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but with full courage now, as always, Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So here's what Paul, listen to what Paul's saying. So I've been arrested for the gospel. Here I am. My great passion is I love Jesus. I want to walk in his ways. I've walked in his ways. I've taken the gospel places. They've not liked it. Now I am in prison. But I have this great overriding passion. I desire Jesus and to walk in the truth. And I want my body, the way that I live, my passions, I want that to honor him. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed that I'm in jail. I'm not ashamed that people didn't respond well to this because my great passion is whether in life or whether I lose my life in death because of the gospel, I want Christ to be honored in my body. And then Paul makes these great famous words. He says these words. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. I get Jesus either way is what Paul says. What is Paul communicating there? He's communicating this reality. I desire Jesus and I have walked in His ways and I have kept His commandments. He wants us to love and obey in great passions. Let's talk about those two things. Let's talk about loving God for a moment. So the eleven are grieving in heart again because Jesus has told them He's leaving. But He tells them here that they are not to show their love for Him with a troubled heart. But they are to show their love for Him in love and obedience. Shaky hearts and fear, those things, that will not sustain us in troubled times. It is trust in, in loving God and desiring God that will sustain us. Love enables us to follow through in our obedience with Christ. It's kind of like marriage. I've been married 33 years now. I do things for my wife now because I love her, not because it's duty. Because I'm obligated. Yes, I'm obligated because of the covenant of marriage. But the things that I do, I want to do those things because I love. And when I love her greatly, it is easier to follow through on things and to be disciplined. It's the same way with God. When we love God greatly, and our great passion is the honor of who He is, our obedience seems to flow in an easier way. But when our heart grows cold and our heart is stale, the relationship with our spouse is harder. And our relationship with Jesus, there's less of a desire to walk in the truth of that. From John 14, 15 to 24, Jesus is going to use the word love eight times. So from 15... 1415 to 1424, he's going to say, this is the dominant theme, is you are to love me. You are to love the commands. You are to love God, and God will love you. He's, he's affirming this 
loving relationship from God to us and our relationship of loving God in return. And so Jesus here makes a conditional statement, says, if we love him, we will naturally do this. We will keep his commandments. We will keep his commandments. We know what love is. Love is, yes, it involves emotion. Love involves an act of the will. Love forgives. Love upholds. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't intentionally do wrong. And so we are, we are to live in such a way that says to Christ, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I'm going to show you in the manner that I love you is I'm going to keep the things that you spoke and that you want us to follow. Notice in the last part of verse 15 there, if you love me, you will keep. Notice the personal pronoun there. You will keep my commandments he is calling the commandments he is calling the word of god his commandments his word and please note that jesus connects loving him with one primary way and what is that keeping his word john will write about this multiple times jesus will speak about it more again on this night so what are the commandments what is he referring to here Well, it's obviously everything that Jesus spoke in the Gospels that has been recorded for us. We are to love those commandments and keep those commandments. We are to love Him and to keep those commandments. Jesus also taught them many things out of the Old Testament. So He gave great affirmation to much of the Old Testament passages for the purpose of the Old Testament was prepare for the coming of Christ. He was the point of the Old Testament and now He is the revelation of the Old Testament is right there in their midst. They were to reveal their love for him by applying his words to their lives. All right, you got your Bible in front of you. Look at John 14, 21. Look at this consistent theme that he's going to continue to make. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now look at 14:23. Jesus answered him, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him." Go to chapter 15 verse 14 just for a moment, and then we'll go back to 14:15. Jesus defines friendship here with him. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So what does this mean for us? That if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will honor my word. You will apply the word to your life. It means this for us that he has the full authority and the sole authority to set the parameters for what following Him looks like in every kind of way. We don't get to have our own opinion about that, but we look at what He has said, and then those things become the parameters and the definition of what loving Him looks like. So this is one of the great evidences to the world that we love Jesus. It's not just a profession. Anybody can say, I believe in Jesus, but it is truly, according to Christ here, it's truly those who believe 
who give the true expression of that love by keeping His sacred words and walking in them. So the call in our lives is not just for Christ followers to grit our teeth and tough this life out. The call on our lives is this, is to love Christ no matter what, and to keep His words, and to find great joy in the midst of that, as Paul did in prison, Philippians 4. I tell you rejoice, and again I tell you what? Rejoice. That was written in a Roman prison. With no end in sight at that point that he would get out. John wrote three other letters outside of the book of Revelation. And in 1 John, the bigger letter, chapter 5, verse 2, listen to this same theme. So this is John at the end of his life writing this. He says, 1 John 5, 2, By this we know that we love God's people. How do you know that you love Christians and you love the church, John writes. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And then listen to what John says. And His commandments are not, be ready for this, are not burdensome. They're not hard to follow, John says. Now wait a minute. Have we not all struggled in the room to walk in the commandments. So what's the issue? Where's the disconnect? I think the disconnect is what Jesus says in John 14 and what John writes in 1 John 5. And here's the disconnect. If we love Him, we are desirous to obey Him, and the commandments aren't burdensome. Isn't that true? We've all been there before, right? But when the heart grows cold, we're not as motivated, discipline's not there, we're tired, whatever the case may be, sometimes they seem burdensome. So the Apostle John's either a liar, or the Spirit of God's a liar who wrote the Scripture and inspired John to write these words, or that's absolutely true. That when we love Jesus, and we keep His commandments, the commandments that we are called to follow are not burdensome. They actually become a delight. They're like Jeremiah. I ate them and they were sweet to my taste. Like honey. Like the sweetness of a honeycomb. And so when the delight is there, there's a, there's a, a movement in our heart and life to be willing to obey. So in light of all of this, let me say this. One of the things that if we're going to gauge our love for Jesus... How well are we loving Jesus? And you can't do that with a thermometer. You can only do it in this way. If we were to gauge our love for Jesus, then we take a look at how we love His commandments. Do we love the commandments of God? In Jesus, not my opinion, but directly Jesus here in verse 15, is saying that there is not a love for Him if there is not a keeping of the commandments. There's just a confession that's not true. Love expresses itself in obedience to God. It expresses itself in action, in following, in listening. 
So a while ago, we finished Psalm 119. Next Sunday, we're going to start over, by the way, if you didn't know. And we're going to put this before us Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Why? Because we have to be reminded that we have one thing to live by. And that is the sacred scripture that's come from the blessed heart of God to us. So, we can never say this. If you've ever heard somebody say this, help them understand this. We can never say, according to Jesus here, well, I love Jesus, but I just really don't have any desire for Him to speak and to instruct how I ought to live my life. Can't be done. Jesus said, if you love me, you will embrace my commandments. In a real sense, disobedience begins to be a breakdown of our love for Christ when we live in disobedience. Spurgeon had a way with words. I'm a big fan of reading Spurgeon. He wrote of this. Listen to this. Some people think that if they love Jesus, they must enter a convent, retire to a cell, dress themselves strangely, or shave their heads. It has been the thought of some men that if we love Christ, we must strip ourselves of everything we possess, put on sackcloth, tie ropes around our waists, and go pine out in the desert. Others have thought it wise to make light of themselves by oddity of dress, and behavior. The Savior doesn't say any of the kind. He simply says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just simply. So watch this. Men, you're going to go take the gospel to places further than I've done. You're going to do greater works than me. When you get there, you want to pray in line with the gospel, with my name being established, that the Father would be glorified through the Son. So ask in line with the gospel, and I will do those things when you ask in line of the gospel in my name. And men, when you get there, show those people who've never heard of me that you love me by keeping my commandments. One of the greatest things you can do in your workplace is to love Jesus and keep His commandments. That means when a joke is told that's not right, that you don't laugh. You keep His commandments. Or you treat others with great integrity and honor and great kindness even when they are unkind like Christ did. We keep His commandments. That's what He's telling these men. Now we're going to move on to the next thing. Because that's not always easy in the midst of a world that doesn't love Jesus. To stand all alone sometimes, keep the commandments, love Him passionately when it may cost something. So Jesus, addressing the issue, says this. Look at 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, this is kind of future, I'm going to ask the Father this. And He will give you another helper when I am gone to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him for He dwells with you 
and will be in you. Look at 16 again. Do you see the Trinity there? Just look for yourself. All three persons of the Trinity are there. And I will ask the Father, and He, the Father, will give you another helper who is the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about this, what Jesus is saying here, His sending of the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest blessings that's ever, ever, ever been given is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus uses the word ask. In the Greek, it means to request. I will request of the Father that when I ascend and I get to the Father again, because I'm going back to Him, that He will send you a helper as you take the gospel, as you pray in line with the gospel and with my name to the glory of the Father, as you before people love me and keep my words and you teach them my words that I have taught you. Matthew 28 I'm going to send you some help. And he's a helper. And so listen to what Jesus is asking here. When I go away, and you're not going to be able to come where I am, I'm going to ask the Father, request of the Father, and this was the plan all along as well, that he's going to send you someone who will be with you, and not just with you, he will be inside of you, with you, and inside of you. He is asking the Father, watch, to help us do what? Obey the commandments. To empower us. Galatians 5. Keep in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. This Spirit, as we love Him, the Spirit moves in us and we, and we live out the, these characteristics and they become fruit of our lives. So Jesus is going away. His going away means He's going to send the Spirit. The Father will send the Spirit. He will request the Father to do that. And this begins this great, this great ministry of the Spirit and now this great new ministry of Jesus. And remind you of what is happening right now. In the midst of the chaos, again, of our culture and our world, and our world wanting to go back to live in Genesis 11, wanting to go back to just oneness, and it's just being pressed. We are to live differently. But listen, listen to this. Listen to what is happening for God's people right now. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Right now, Jesus is interceding for us, speaking to the Father on our behalf. Hebrews 4.14, what kind of one is speaking to the Father on our behalf? Does he get it about this life here? Well, this is what the writer of Hebrews says in 14 and 15 of chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has... Passed through the heavens, he has ascended, he has gone to the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Watch this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
when we plead with the Lord as we struggle, he's like, yeah, I get it. We have a high priest who understands because he was here. And then he talks what? He talks to the Father in intimate knowledge about humanity on our behalf. If that's not enough, the writer of Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, Christ, always lives to make intercession for them. If that's not enough, Paul wrote in Romans 8 that not only will Jesus intercede for us, do you remember that sometimes we don't even know what we ought to pray in Romans chapter 8? And Paul says the Spirit will pray on our behalf with groans that we can't even make and words we can't speak. The Spirit will intercede for us. That's pretty amazing, folks. That right now, that's happening for us. And if something happens in our lives on a Wednesday of this week or tonight that's troublesome, never forget Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father who always lives to make intercession for us. The Spirit, when we don't even, some nights we know this, sometimes we don't even know what to pray. Well, the Spirit knows what to pray. He knows the heart and the mind of the Father. And when we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit absolutely knows what to pray on our behalf. Is that not amazing? Sometimes our life just can't even express what needs to be expressed, but the Spirit can on our behalf. So listen to what Jesus says here. I am going to go away. I'm going to ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. This word, another here, is a word that means another of the same kind. So what's Jesus affirming here? The Holy Spirit is God. Listen, hear this. The Holy Spirit is not some force. The Holy Spirit is a person with attributes. He feels, He knows, He works, He moves. He is active. Yes, He's powerful, He's God. But you and I need to to see this. Jesus says, I'm going to send another one of the same kind, just like me. Man, I've been in your midst physically, and I've been God in your midst. The Father is God, but I'm going to ask the Father to send another of the same kind as us, the Spirit, who is also God. Same, equal God, and He will come and He will be with you, and He will be in you. So we have two great advocates. We have Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit. The word helper is a Greek word called paraclete, and what it means is this. It means to be called to one side to help to aid, and to comfort. Your translation may say comforter, or um, mine says helper. Some may say advocate, whatever the case may be. All of those words are accurate. The word paraclete is mentioned five times in the New Testament. Four of them are connected to the Holy Spirit, and one of them is connected to Jesus. Here's the one that's connected to Jesus. John writes in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I got some great news in the room this morning. If you're a believer in Christ today, right now in this moment, you have believed by faith and you are safe and secure and the Spirit resides in your life 
guaranteeing your future inheritance. You have an advocate named Jesus Christ and an advocate named Holy Spirit who are for you and for me. What security, what great work God has done. Notice also that Jesus says of the Holy Spirit earlier in John 14, 6, 6, not sex, sorry, John 14, 6, he said, I am the truth. Notice what he says about the Spirit. The Spirit's called what? Truth. Jesus is truth. So our advocates interceding for us, praying for us, coming alongside to aid us, our God, their essence is God, their nature is God, and they are also both truth. The Spirit is truth, and Jesus is truth. And for three years in these men's lives, Jesus has been this unbelievable rock of influence. He has been their friend, their guide, their teacher, as well as their life counselor. He has spent countless hours teaching them, answering their questions. And all they have known is about to make a sharp turn in a few hours. And He's going to be away from them, and they're not going to see Him again until Sunday night. But He tells them that He is going to go away, and eventually He's going to go away to a place that they cannot go. And if He goes away, He's going to send a helper to help them, and it will be this great gift that will be inside of them and so this teaching of jesus was to communicate to them in this moment to let them know that that god would still be just as he had been personally and powerfully in their lives god would still be personally and powerfully in their lives when the holy spirit came and here's the reason this is so important that you and i in a world such as ours today, are alive people. Alive to the words of God, walking in the commandments of God, loving Jesus, being being in step with the Spirit as Galatians 5 speaks about. Here's why. Because the world in which we live in has no clue about who the Spirit is and who Jesus is. Look what he says here. He says, even the spirit of truth, 17, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Those who live in the world right now and don't have a relationship with Christ will not receive the spirit. They are caught up in the ambitions of this life. The pride and the pursuit of pleasure in our culture. They can't see the spirit. They cannot sense the Spirit. They cannot know the Spirit. And without the Spirit opening their eyes to the glory of Christ, they cannot come to faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 at the end, into chapter 4. They can't see Him or know Him, for the Spirit is holy and true. And so in an age of lies, they stay stuck in those lies. They defend those lies. And they live those lies as if they are normal. Look at, our, look at our world today. People just living lies as if it's normal. Why? Because they do not know the Spirit. Our world lives in systemic rebellion against God because of the rejection of Jesus 
and their inability to receive the Spirit because they haven't come to faith. Our world is fully hostile against all things connected to God. Our world lives by its senses. God's people live by faith. They walk by sight, prove it, show it. We walk by faith. The Spirit is lost to the world, for they cannot see that He is at work, especially in regard to the truth. And so therefore, the world judges just about everything with their senses of gratification. Does it please me, satisfy me? I might be open to it. So why is the world so utterly lost? And why does it seem that it's just upside down and crazy? I want you to look at this verse. It's up there on the screen. 700 years before Jesus was born into this world, if you thought, if you thought postmodernism is a 20th century product, it's not. 700 years before Jesus came, people were going, no, I can call that truth. I can call bittersweet and call that my truth. And I'll just live it as normal. We live in an Isaiah 520 world. Do we not just shake our heads at the news and stuff we hear and just, what do you, what? Why does the world say the things that it does? Why does the world do the things that it does? You know why? Because the world doesn't know the Spirit. You know what one of the great roles of the Spirit is? Is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And until the Spirit does that work in someone's life and in the world's life or in a culture's life, then people say what's bitter is actually sweet. And what's wrong is actually true. And they just flip it all and everybody's okay with it and considers it normal so relativism making up our own truth is not anything new in our world and i want to say something to every one of us who are christ followers in the room we need to quit being shocked that our world thinks this way how else are they going to think but in line with their own gratification and embracing lies that is why, watch, this, that is why that as we do the greater work of taking the gospel places and we pray in line that the Father's name is glorified through the Son and we pray for gospel work to be established in the world and before those people we love God passionately and we walk and live out the truth and then we're empowered by the Spirit living before those people the Spirit begins to work. Last night, well, on Thursday, couldn't go with the family to Walmart. We go to Walmart every Thursday night for the next week. And I couldn't go Thursday night. So last night, I went to Walmart, pulled up into my place, started walking in. And a guy parked directly. Out. He pulled, we pulled in together like this. He started walking down his lane. I'm walking down my lane. We get up to the end of the lane before the door. And he says, how long have you had that big truck there? And I said, not very long, since June. He said, I've got a big old Toyota Sequoia like that. It'll run forever. And he, 
and I didn't, you, you know, you have those moments where you're like, I didn't want to talk to anybody tonight. I just wanted, can I just buy my groceries? It's 8 o'clock. I don't, I don't want to talk. So we both get our baskets. We step inside, and he's not done talking. And so I stop. <clears throat> so I listen. What do you do? Kind of what's going on? What's your family life like? And so we talked a lot about him. And I have one of those jobs that's different than your job where they always eventually get to the place where they ask me what I do, and he's been cussing the whole time. I mean, just people walking by, and he's, every cuss word you can say, he's just saying them, and we're having a conversation. And So what do you do? Well, I, Baylor Hospital off 380, I, I pastor a church back behind there. And he, no lie, he reached over and tapped me on there and said, sorry <laughs> about all the things he had been saying. I come to find out, that as we talked a little bit more, that he's three years older than me, and he's got a four-year-old that seems to be pretty smart. He's 56 and got a four-year-old. Anybody want to volunteer for that job? Then anyway. And his four-year-old asked him the other day, he said, Dad, how old was, how old was your dad, you know, when he left the earth? And he said, well, my dad was about 80, and and so the, the kid was thinking and wasn't totally accurate, but he said, boy, Dad, you don't have much time. And he said, you know, this guy, by the way, when he found out what I did, proceeded to tell me what the Bible says about things. He's never read it, by the way, we asked him that. He's never read it, but he was telling me what all the Bible says, and he told me what he did, and I wouldn't begin to tell him how to do his job because I have no idea how he would do his job but he's totally, totally, totally lost. But listen to what he said to me. He said, you know, for the first time ever in my life, my four-year-old made me think about what am I going to do? What's on the other side? And so we're standing there cart to cart, and there's no more cussing now. And I told him about a Savior that loved him who died in his place. And he didn't, I'd love to say he, you know, heavens opened up and this light shone and Walmart it didn't. But I prayed last night and I prayed this morning that this week he'd meet another Christian who'd tell him about a Savior who died in his place. See, this is, this is what Jesus is talking about to the 11. Even sometimes when you're not ready for it, God just says, you're going to talk about me. And because I wasn't really looking for it, but I'm always ready, I got to talk about Jesus. And I tell you, the world is the way it is because it has rejected the Spirit and rejected Jesus. But, watch, look what Jesus says next. But you know him, he tells the eleven. For he dwells with you, the Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate. He dwells with you and will be in you. In contrast to the world, we know him and we understand the Holy Spirit. So Jesus indicates here that when I go, something's going to happen. The Spirit's going to come. Right now, the Spirit's going to be with you. But at Pentecost, the Spirit's going to be in you. And, and you will have God living inside of you. And this word dwell here means to, re, 
means to remain. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. It means to remain. So it is to be understood that we will know the reality of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. We will know about this. Listen to what John wrote in 1 John 3, 24. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this, here's how we know that God abides in us. John writes, by the Spirit whom He has given to us. How do I know I belong to Him? How do I know that I'm His? Because He has put His Holy Spirit in me. The Spirit does a lot of things. We're going to finish up now. The Spirit does a lot of things. Let me just run through four really key ones. One is this, John 16, 14. The Spirit glorifies Jesus by taking what belongs to Jesus and declaring it to believers. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The second thing that the Spirit does is in 1426. He will teach us all things and aid our remembrance of Christ's words. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now listen to this for a second. How do we even have accurately John 13 through 17, these great, this great last teaching of Jesus, the most extensive teaching of Jesus in the New Testament? Did John pull out his iPhone and press record? Did he have an old cassette tape and, you know, you got to press play and record button at the same time? How in the world did he remember what Jesus was just saying? Later on, years later, you know what the Holy Spirit did? Brought to remembrance every word Jesus spoke in the upper room so that John could write it down. So that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit also bears witness about Jesus, John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then Jesus says, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know what the Spirit's great work is? Who does He emphasize a lot? Jesus. The Spirit makes a big deal about Jesus. He becomes the guarantee, the pledge, proving and guaranteeing our relationship until Jesus returns for His bride. Let me give you two scriptural evidences of that. In Him you also... When you heard the word of truth, Ephesians 1.13, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 2 Corinthians 1.21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And then lastly, Jesus says this. Man, I, I'm telling you the Spirit. I'm going to ask the Father, and, and, and the Father's going to send the Spirit, and He's going to be with you. He's going to be in you. But I want to talk about me one more time. And I want to remind you something about me. You know, a little bit earlier I told you that 
that I'm going to go away and I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be where I am. So in verse 18, he says, let me tell you about me. I'm going to send the Spirit. The Spirit will indwell you. But let me tell you about me. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In large part, their troubled heart is this idea he's going to be gone. And they don't really know the significance of this until the day of Pentecost when the Spirit does indwell them. But he wants to know that he is not going to abandon them forever. He's not going to be gone. They will not be all alone. An orphan is someone who lacks protection and doesn't have a position. They don't have an identity with a, with a family. They live in a home. Other people take care of them and feed them. And I want you to notice the significance of what Jesus says here. He says, listen, you're not going to be an orphan. I'm going to go and request and ask the Father to send the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to come to you. And you're not going to be an orphan. The abiding presence of God is going to be with you in your midst. You're going to be adopted. You're going to have a family where there's a heavenly father and you've got me, you've known me. And secondly, if Jesus comes to you and I, then you and I will have protection and we will have position. So he tells the 11, you're not going to be left alone. You're not going to be an orphan. I will come to you. And I don't know what it was like for them on Friday during the day when word comes they, they, they all witnessed him be arrested. And I don't know what it was like for them on Friday night. He's in a tomb now, everybody. He's gone. I can't believe the way they beat him today. The way he was mocked. They made him carry his cross. He couldn't even carry it. He fell and they, they got this guy to pick up his cross. And then they, they crucified him like we've seen all over the land in our whole lifetime that Roman that Rome does to people. And on Saturday, I can't imagine how sunk their hearts were. And I also can't imagine what it was like on Sunday night when they're in a locked room and he just appears. <laughs> how amazing is that? He just shows up in the room and says, Peace. Peace. I'm alive. I am alive. So he tells them, I'm not going to leave you alone. I think there's three ideas with that. One was... That in his resurrection, when he says to them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He would come to them in the resurrection. He would also come to them in the coming of the Spirit. And did you hear this? He's coming again. Here. He's coming again. He is never going to leave us as orphans. So let's put all this together. Go with me to 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you will believe in me, you will do the works that I've been doing, the gospel works that I've been doing, and greater works that you will do because I'm going to the Father. How do we do that? We do that by 13, by asking in His name. And He says, this I will do. And as I do this, and as you ask in line with the works that I have done, with the gospel, the Father may be glorified in the Son. So if you ask me in line with those things, anything in my name, I will do it. So what do we do when we get in the midst of those people? 
Verse 15, will you love me? And by loving me, you will keep my commandments and you will live that before others. It's going to be hard to do that. And so how, how are you going to do that? We're well, going to do that because I will ask the Father, 16, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. You see, He's the Spirit of truth. And though the world doesn't receive Him, you're going to take Him in the message. It doesn't, it doesn't see Him. It doesn't know Him. But you do. And so you're going to go... For He dwells with you and He will empower you and He will be in you. And I want to remind you that I'm not going to leave you all alone. I'm going to come to you on Sunday night. And then I'm going to come to you at Pentecost. And then I'm going to come to you at the end of the age. Do you see the hope we have and the security that we have because of Christ? Let's pray together.